folks, David Shepard here, MLA for Edmonton City Center, proud new Democrat, welcoming you to another edition of The Herd. So great to have, great to be here, another beautiful sunny day as I record this from here at home. Uh, things have obviously been a little crazy, a little hectic uh, in and around the province of Alberta as we continue to work through this COVID-19 pandemic, the many challenges that are happening. And indeed in my role as the official opposition critic for health, I've had a lot of things coming across my plate uh, from the challenges that uh, doctors are facing across the province of Alberta, a lot of changes on that policy uh, through all the many other aspects of the pandemic that we're dealing with. I'm gonna be talking about that a little later in the episode today alongside a number of other things that we as uh, the official opposition caucus have been bringing forward. Uh, we made a lot of suggestions early on as we saw this pandemic on the horizon and a lot of things where we suggested that government might want to take some proactive steps. Unfortunately, in many cases, the government chose not to listen but eventually ended up coming around and making some of those decisions. Uh, we've seen the similar thing on the file with doctors and indeed with rural doctors and I spoke in the legislature in early March and warned that if uh, Tyler Shandor went forward with the sweeping cuts he wanted to force through on April 1st, we were going to see serious repercussions in uh, our rural healthcare system and indeed see, start seeing the loss of doctors. That's precisely what we've seen over the last few weeks and so that we've seen the government make some decisions and start to walk back some of their policies there. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We're gonna to be talking about some of these decisions where government has chosen perhaps not the best approach and is now walking things back. But to start, I wanna take a look at some of the things that are happening in the last little while. So of course, uh, we're into the month of May and we've had the announcement now from the Premier that we are going to be starting to reopen Alberta's economy in mid April. So we've raised a couple of concerns about things that have still been happening. One of them was that now that we are past May 1st, of course, a lot of folks are still really challenged. We have not reopened that economy yet. Many people are still out of work uh, and in a position where they are financially constrained. So we did push for the government to put in supports for, uh, for folks in uh, banning evictions and making sure that no Albertan would find themselves without a place to live in the midst of a pandemic and at a time when we may be needing people to actually self-isolate. Hundreds and thousands of folks have lost their jobs, they've had their wages reduced, and many don't know how they're gonna keep a roof over their head. The government did move forward and bring in those protections, but only for the month of April. So at this point, we don't know what's going to happen for renters uh, in the month of May. So we've been pushing for the government to extend that eviction plan, uh, that eviction ban until July. Unfortunately, so far, we have not seen a movement from the provincial government on that. One of the other things we've been talking about is business rents and recognizing the incredible challenges that businesses face and indeed at the biggest pressure for many small businesses and, uh, and individuals, entrepreneurs, was that monthly rent that with no income coming in, there are so many businesses closed down, they have no way to pay that cost. Now, there is a rental assistance plan that's come in now that's been jointly developed by Ottawa and uh, the federal government and uh, the UCP government here in the province of Alberta. But there are concerns about whether that program is gonna be effective. We're hearing from many small businesses that in fact, it's not going to come fast enough or not going to be enough. Indeed, there's a number of small businesses in the province of Alberta, particularly in the hospitality industry, that don't aren't eligible. Roughly about two thirds of small businesses in the hospitality industry 
aren't covered by the plan. So we believe there's more work to do. Uh, even as we are looking to reopen the economy and get businesses operating again, uh, restaurants, pubs, some of these hospitality businesses are going to be fairly early in that wave, but they still are going to have some considerable costs to make up in the time in between. So the premier has announced that we are going to be starting to reopen the economy. We're going to be starting uh, uh, as early as next week. Uh, golf courses, uh, certain medical services, uh, dentists, uh, physiotherapists, others. Uh, there are some concerns about whether they were actually consulted as part of this. From what I'm hearing, uh, the Alberta Dental Association in college didn't actually know that they were going to be allowed to open again until the premier's announcement this week. We're hoping that there's going to be some better communication on that going forward. There's other things that we're going to be watching for. Uh, how is childcare going to work and how is that going to be rolled out with uh, so many families now who have their kids at home because so schools are going to remain closed? How is childcare going to be rolled out? Make sure the protections are in place, the supports are there. Is it going to be affordable, accessible so that parents are able to go back to work? Uh, the what, This is uh, going to be partly predicated on our ability to continue to test for COVID-19. The Premier said a few weeks ago that our ability to perform up to 20,000 tests per day because of our incredible public laboratory system here in the province of Alberta is going to be key to that reopening strategy. Right now, we're not hitting that number. We've yet to reach a quarter of that number. So the question is going to be, are the resources going to be there, the investment going to be there to be able to ramp that up and provide the protection we need? Of course, we're going to be continuing to watch some of the other areas. Uh, we've had some challenges uh, around the uh, the Cargill and JBS meatpacking plants. We've had some issues around long-term care. Really happy on the episode today. Got a, got our critic Lauren Dack from Agriculture and Forestry to talk about the Cargill situation. Our critic on seniors and housing, Louis Sigurdsson, to talk about the issues in long-term care. But as we prepare to reopen the economy and we prepare to have people going back to work in many occupations, I think it's important that we take a moment and think about some of the challenges we have faced with essential workers so far. Now, essential workers uh, during the pandemic have been folks that have been needed out there on the front lines, whether it's grocery store workers, because we need to keep the food system running, whether it's folks that work in the healthcare field, our doctors, our nurses, there have been some childcare centers and some other things that were essential to keeping our province running. And we've seen some real challenges, unfortunately, where the provincial government has been slow to take action to protect uh, workers in a couple of these situations. One of those situations has been in the meatpacking industry. So we recognize, of course, that folks need to get food. We need to have a way to, we need to make sure we can keep our food supply going, that people have access to what they need to be able to continue to feed themselves and their families. But we've seen a profound challenge in the Cargill and JBS meatpacking plants here in the province of Alberta, where unfortunately we did not see proper steps taken early enough and we've seen some major outbreaks of COVID-19 as a result, not only in those plants, but also in the surrounding communities where their workers live in High River and Brooks. So I took a moment to talk with our critic for agriculture and forestry, Lauren Dack, about what's happened with the Cargill and JBS meatpacking plants. All right, folks, so I'm very happy to have here with me Lauren Dack, who's our MLA for uh, Edmonton uh, McClung and our critic for uh, agriculture and forestry. Thanks for joining me, Lauren. Hey, nice to be here. First time in a herd. 
<laughs> Indeed, and we're glad to have you. So, Lauren, I wanted to talk to you about uh, about something that you've been working fairly closely on as agriculture critic. So, that being the situation around the Cargill and JBS meatpacking plants and COVID nineteen, uh, Lauren, can you give us a, a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a background? Uh, how did this all get started? When did we first start, I guess, raising possible concerns about something happening? Well, during one of my weekly phone calls with uh, Minister Grishin, Minister for Agriculture and Forestry, uh, it was a Thursday, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that At that point in time, there were 38 uh, uh, recognized uh, cases of infection at the plant. And I asked the minister, at what point would they actually close the plant, plant down? Like, why weren't they shutting it down at that point and doing an assessment of what type, how deep the problem was, and then looking at reopening the plant when it was safe? And uh, he seemed to indicate that these were essential workers who had to go to work and uh, that, they, uh, that the plant was safe. And uh, if they didn't go to work, there could be consequences. So, uh, a day later, we ended up, or over the weekend, uh, with 358 cases, and mm. on the Monday, uh, the plant was closed. So, uh, <laughs> three days before they closed the plant, the minister was claiming it's a safe workplace, and uh, people should report to duty. Indeed. So that was a pretty rapid explosion of cases. So basically multiplied by 10 times within a few days that we saw those cases explode. Now, I know looking back, uh, Christina Gray, so she's our critic for labor. She had been up in the legislature, I think, in March 6th, asking, recognizing that with COVID-19, maybe we should have more frequent inspections of workplaces in general, and indeed places like meatpacking plants, which are people are in pretty close quarters. She raised that again on March 20th, and I guess on April 6th is when we saw our first positive case of COVID-19. And within about a week of that, UFCW, sort of the union that represents these workers, had actually come out and asked for that plant to be closed. Now, can you tell me a bit about that? Why was UFCW sort of speaking up? Had they been hearing from the workers? Well, absolutely. They've been hearing from the workers who are very, very scared. Most of the uh, workers are uh, either temporary foreign workers or people who do not have permanent residence in Canada and potentially don't even have English as their first language hmm. and are not used to uh, 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 confronting an employer in their previous countries. And this is a situation where they, they feared for their jobs and their status in Canada and were, were very concerned about bringing up their fears but they're also really, very really worried about bringing this disease home to their families. And there we got cases popping up in the plant and they're terrified. Yeah, uh, and understandably so. Now, you mentioned uh, cases going back and people sort of bringing it back to their families. And uh, yeah, you mentioned again that these are folks, and many of them temporary foreign workers and others, so they're not making a lot of money. So they are, uh, and they do have close families, so there's a lot of people living together. There were people carpooling. So there are a lot of issues that could really contribute to this. So if, if the employer's not taking proper care on that end, it really was a recipe for this to kind of explode. Well, it was, but I, you know, one thing that really concerns me, and this is concerned particularly uh, the Filipino communities, many of whose members have spoken out about it, that they were getting victim blamed mm. by the company for actually spreading the disease uh, uh, by way of their living, maybe two families to a household or, or carpooling. Well, these conditions are those that are set by the, the wages that they're earning. They can't afford to uh, rent their own house, one family per accommodation, or maybe even buy their own car. So they're doing what they can to, uh, to survive on the incomes that they're earning. 
and it happened to contribute to the spread of this disease. But the source of this disease, uh, by and large, has been determined to be the plants themselves. And it really, really upsets me to hear the, uh, the, the blaming that's going on for those victims, those people who contracted the disease, saying, hey, you're, it's your fault? Uh-uh. Sorry, it's the conditions in that plant that contributed to the spread of that disease, the rapid spread of that disease. It was a, uh, a, a, a super spreader. Mm. And uh, it's been shown right across North America that these packing plants are super spreaders. Indeed. And so you make a very good point there. I mean, it's really the employer on both fronts that made these folks vulnerable to this rapid spread. First of all, due to the economic circumstances that these folks find themselves in, and therefore very much at the mercy of, a, of the employer and the decisions that they make. And indeed, as you say, sort of being in the economic conditions that don't give them the opportunity to, uh, to be living in multiple houses or not carpooling or making those other choices that some of us, I guess, with more privilege get to make. But then secondly, by keeping them in an environment then where you know, the virus had the opportunity to spread in the workplace and then be taken back to their community. Now, that happened very quickly, as you said. So sort of on the, on the 12th of April, UFCW called for the closure of the plant for two weeks. On the 13th, that's when we had the 38 uh, workers that were identified. So you talked to the minister within a couple days, yeah, over 358 cases, and we actually saw that plant closed. And so that's remaining closed, but we just got news that plant will be opening again on May 4th. So I guess the government didn't really walk their position back. It was Cargill themselves kind of, I guess, uh, felt the pressure as we saw this uh, exponential rise in the cases. But now they're opening again on May 4th. Have they, have the workers been consulted in this? Do they feel that they're ready to go back and that things are safe? No, this is not being supported by their union in any way, shape, or form. Now, the workers are, are very fearful of going back, but once again, they feel, and this is my word, uh, blackmailed into going to work. Basically, report to work and risk your life or, or get or get fired. This is the happening in the United States with, uh, with the invocation by Donald Trump of the uh, Defense Production Act, where he's forcing workers to go back to packing plants, even though they fear the conditions might be unsafe. And it seems as though the same type of instrument is being used here where workers whose unions were not consulted, uh, who were, whose unions and legal representation was, was circumvented, and are they're, they're being forced to go back to work and uh, they're not feeling safe at all. And it's, it's really, really a, a scary situation for these families who fear that uh, they're going to end up having a wider spread of this infection. And the company is looking at... Uh, uh, simply the, uh, the supply chain rather than the human safety element. And this isn't just isolated either to uh, Cargill and the community in High River. One of the other uh, major outbreak sites in the province now is the Brooks community around the JBS plant. So uh, my understanding is there's not as many cases there, but uh, at least, uh, let's see here, 620 cases, I guess, linked currently to the Cargill plant in High River, uh, including 480 workers, uh, further 124 cases uh, linked to the JBS plant in Brooks. So, sorry, let me start that again. <laughs> so, uh, they, so High River isn't the only community that's being affected here and the, and the Cargill plant. We also have the JBS plant in Brooks and the Brooks community, which is sort of one of the other biggest hotspots for uh, COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, we've seen, I think, at least uh, over 124 cases linked to the JBS plant uh, and a worker has died there as well as workers from Cargill. What are you hearing from the folks at the JBS plant or uh, how are they feeling about the situation? They haven't had the chance to stop operating at all. 
No, and the expectation is that uh, the, the company will try to continue operating as long as they can. And the, the, the biggest issue that's consistent in both plants is that the uh, unions have been excluded from the discussions. Mm. And that's problematic because if you want people to go back into an environment, and, and an environment they, they, they earn their livelihood in, uh, and to do so uh, with confidence, uh, they need to be part of the process and they need to be listened to. I worked at a packing plant as a younger man. I know exactly what, uh, what goes on inside of them. It was years ago, granted, but it's a wet environment. And in the locker rooms, or even in the shower rooms, when you when you leave the, those plants at the end of a shift, you want to shower. In many cases, depending upon where you work in the plant, but you need to shower. And those shower stalls are are like uh, uh, the YMCA; they're open stalls. So there's areas there for contamination or cross contamination. And uh, these things are are not something that has been fully uh, uh, vetted with the workers, and their voices should be respected along with their unions. Indeed, and that was, and that's been the biggest concern, I guess, is that workers were, in some cases, working side by side, very close quarters, very tight hallways where people had to pass each other, packed locker rooms. So they say some of these, they're saying these issues have been addressed, but one of the concerns is that the uh, the inspections of these sites and have been done by video conference, <laughs> as opposed to an ex- inspector actually going in person to the site. Uh, what is the concern with that? Why is that a problem? Well, you don't actually get to see the plant operating with workers. Now, subsequently, I believe there had been some on-site uh, inspection as well, but not while the plants have been operational. And uh, that doesn't allow you to understand the proximity of one worker to another and what the opportunities for cross-contamination are. So uh, you, you have heard, may have heard that uh, phone calls were made by AHS to uh, workers uh, in the plants to sort of get the workers input, but that doesn't uh, uh, satisfy the need for the uh, work, the representation of those workers, their, their unions, to be involved in the process. It's a way of circumventing that, and I think it's a it's an ideologically based process where the, uh, the companies and the government are hoping to uh, exclude the the union's opportunity to do its job and represent its workers. So what would, uh, what would the workers like to see going forward? What, do you, uh, what are you calling for, Lauren, from the government on this? I'm calling for the government to include the union uh, representatives in any inspection of the plant and to have the, uh, the union and the workers sign off and, and have the authority to refuse to work if they feel it's unsafe. And that, that should be respected. So, Lauren, you know, when you talk about this, and I guess it sounds like they're working hard to sort of exclude the union from the process, that reminds me of uh, one of the other topics I'm, I'm talking about on this on this episode, that being the, the doctors in the province of Alberta. And we've certainly seen the province, uh, we've seen Tyler Shandro and, uh, and others in the UCP government trying to divide doctors from the Alberta Medical Association, like you say, kind of divide and conquer sort of strategy. And it sounds like they're trying to do a similar thing here. Alberta doctors are taking the government to court for their their right to arbitration and my understanding is UFCW may be looking at, at filing some sort of a court uh, injunction on this as well. Absolutely. UFCW has made it public that they will seek every le- means including legal action uh, to uh, prevent Cargill from opening uh, on uh, on Monday. So we'll see what happens over the weekend and if indeed they uh, reach an injunction, we may not see that plant open until such time as uh, the, the company can satisfy workers that uh, uh, they indeed are safe and the workers' input has been respected uh, along with that of their union. 
Indeed. And as you say, I guess that's, it's an important part, but particularly for workers like this who are more vulnerable, these temporary foreign workers, the, uh, the union represents, I guess, that opportunity for them to work together and have that chance to raise their voice stronger than they can alone, which I guess is why this government wants so badly to sort of separate them and pick them off. Well, who, who do you expect the workers to trust? You're going to trust the, the government who's trying to force them back to work, the company who's trying to force them back to work, or the union who represents their interests and is looking out for their safety. Uh, I would expect that they uh, would look to the union to protect their interests, and uh, uh, the union is doing everything they can to do just that by seeking an injunction. Well, thank you, Lauren. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk about this today. Pleasure, David. So one of the other areas where we have essential workers in the province of Alberta, and indeed a considerable challenge in monitoring and preventing the spread of COVID-19 is in long-term care. Uh, Seniors care, uh, we recognize that seniors are one of the most vulnerable populations uh, when it comes to COVID-19. And indeed, the the leading number of deaths in most jurisdictions from COVID-19 have been amongst uh, amongst seniors and, and older individuals. They're particularly vulnerable. So we recognized early on that what we had seen happen in other jurisdictions, that that could happen here if we did not take proper steps to fill in some of the gaps that we know existed in our long-term care in our seniors care system. Unfortunately, again, we saw the provincial government was slow to act on some of the recommendations we brought forward, but some changes have been introduced now. So I took a moment to talk with Lori Sigurdsson, our critic for seniors in housing, about her thoughts on the government's response to protecting against COVID-19 for seniors in Alberta. I'm very happy to have you here with me today, my colleague, Lori Sigurdsson, who is our critic for Seniors in Housing. Uh, thanks for joining me, Lori. Well, great to be with you. Thanks, David. Excellent. So we've been talking today about some of the challenges around long-term care. Uh, and we've been talked a bit about the situation over at Cargill and the meatpacking plants sort of being the biggest outbreak in Alberta. But the second biggest outbreak of COVID-19 has been in long-term care. Care. Now, this is something that we knew was a possibility, and we kind of started flagging early on. Uh, do you remember sort of roughly when we as a caucus sort of started to raise those concerns with the government? Oh, certainly we were uh, concerned, you know, in March, you know, and uh, had uh, asked for, I mean, certainly I was talking to all sorts of stakeholders in the sector, and uh, they were very concerned that they didn't have, uh, you know, protective uh, personal equipment. Mm. Some of them talked about not having uh, sufficient cleaning supplies because of the uh, increased protocols regarding the cleaning. Uh, And certainly, you know, we all know that there's been a significant issue with staffing with, uh, you know, many times people don't have full-time jobs at one facility, so they work at many facilities. And certainly in Calgary, where we've seen a so many outbreaks there. I think there's 28 uh, seniors facilities that have outbreaks there. Uh, staff worked at several sites and, uh, you know, admitting, you know, not meaning to, of course, uh, did transmit the virus to, across those sites. And that has caused significant difficulties, obviously. Indeed. So that's been, uh, I guess, the second largest outbreak in the province has been through long-term care. Well, what are the numbers looking like on that, Lord? Yeah, well, um, In long-term care facilities, there's 37 outbreaks. And of course, uh, Dr. Hinshaw has described that as two or more cases, and it could be staff or it could be residents. 
there's uh, 483 cases, infections. And uh, uh, we know very sadly there's been 52 deaths in uh, uh, long-term care facilities. So, um, you know, and we have, I think the numbers yesterday were 79 for the province. So that's, you know, almost 70% of the deaths have been in long-term care facilities. And that's so sad. And certainly I send my condolences to uh, all the families who've uh, experienced a loss. It's, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult time, very serious matter. Absolutely. And certainly we recognize that uh, seniors are the most vulnerable population. And generally, that's been the case across jurisdictions, that they have to see the highest number of deaths. But again, we knew there were some steps that could be taken fairly early on. So like you said, uh, there were concerns around the protective personal equipment. I remember we brought that up in the legislature. We were asking a lot of questions, not getting a lot of information at first. And then secondly, sort of looking to the province of uh, BC and some others who are a bit at the head of the curve on us in some of the steps they took proactively to deal with some of the situations. Can you tell me a bit about that? What were we suggesting that Alberta do that we had seen work so well in BC? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're talking about what we call the PPE, you know, personal protective equipment. I mean, a lot of it was not getting to these seniors, the long-term care facilities or other seniors facilities. I mean, one of the barriers that I had heard early on was because, you know, a lot of these are private facilities. So it's not Alberta Health Services that runs them. And so, of course, Alberta Health Services had had priority for their facilities, but private facilities don't have them. And also the lodge program, you know, which is uh, run by housing management bodies all across this province. I mean, they're uh, run through the Ministry of Seniors and Housing. And of course, they don't have AHS at the back of, you know, any kind of uh, email they send. And so again, that was a problem. That was, we certainly brought that up in the media. And over time, uh, the government did move on that and made more accessible. But some of the difficulties about that was that uh, they were substandard. You know, they didn't fit right, the masks. And, uh, you know, they have moved on those issues. But of course, that was a big thing. Just that seemed to go very slowly. So that's one thing. Do you want me to keep going? Uh, Yeah. So and so that's one of the reasons I think that we were sort of speaking up then and sort of saying we should look at that BC model where they centralized control. So they said, the government sort of said, we are going to essentially control and operate all of the long-term care facilities in the province. They centralized the coordination of the staff, restricted staff to working at a single site, and then put in place a wage top-up. So So is that a model you think would have been helpful for us here in Alberta? Yes, absolutely, David. And uh, I mean, they did move on, on, we called it hazard pay, uh, the wage top-up, but you know, often a lot of these jobs are very, uh, you know, low paying jobs, minimum wage jobs. Mm. And they, this government, the UCP government just made it specifically to healthcare aides. And, uh, you know, but people are serving meals, people are doing maintenance, there's all sorts of other things. So it was only a very specific group of workers who got that hazard pay. And frankly, it wasn't enough. It was only $2 an hour. Uh, you know, I think BC topped it up seven, other jurisdictions four, you know, so they're still making very uh, marginal wages. And it's, there's so much risk you know, to them and to their families. Sometimes they have, you know, children to care for. And so it became a huge issue because people were not coming to work because they had all these other, you know, personal challenges. Plus they were very afraid of COVID-19 as we, you know, all were 
initially. But then what happened is that, you know, our, you know, people in seniors' facilities weren't being cared for it at the level they should. And you know what, David, the sad part of this is, is that it's, there's been an issue for many years already, sort of in the private uh, delivery of, uh, you know, higher level seniors' care and uh, questions about adequate staffing. And of course, in a pandemic situation like this, that just was so much more pronounced. And indeed, so we've seen one site in northern Alberta where the government has actually, or AHS has had to step in and take over for just that reason. Exactly. Manoir du Lac in uh, McLennan had a, a significant outbreak and, uh, you know, many staff uh, were had the infection of COVID-19, which they transferred to patients. And many, uh, you know, there's quite a few deaths in that facility. I think there's about 70 residents or so. And uh, yeah, EHS stepped in because the proper protocols were not uh, being taken care of. And they also just couldn't, uh, didn't have enough staff to be able to uh, support people. So that's good. I think that should happen province-wide. Absolutely. And as you, as you know, uh, similar to the Cargill situation, the meatpacking plants, the uh, healthcare aides and others that are working at these facilities, these private facilities, often are vulnerable workers. So they don't have a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of opportunity. They're paying low wages, having to work part-time hours. So that's kind of why we wanted to see that proactive action on the part of government. So to speak, Absolutely. control to protect. Yeah. And, and another piece of that. Okay, sorry, David. And another piece of that is just like, because they have to cobble together a full-time wage for themselves, because they can't get full-time hours, it's kind of how the system is. You know, they don't want to give them benefits, they're just giving them, you know, a part-time job. And so that they, uh, you know, work at many facilities. So one of the things that we're asking also is that they be given, you know, a full-time equivalent, an FTE guarantee, so that if they say, okay, I have to say to uh, my employer that I'm only working at this facility, but I still can't pay my bills. I still need to have a full-time job. So, you know, that's something that, you know, we've asked and the government hasn't responded to. Indeed. So, and you were telling me, Lori, so we've talked a lot about the long-term care. You mentioned briefly a seniors' lodges earlier, recognize there are other types of housing for seniors. What kind of challenges are they facing with COVID-19? Well, very similar challenges, actually, David. I mean, I've heard certainly concerns about the PPE, you know, and I did talk about that earlier. Uh, and even cleaning supplies early on, it was... Uh, because of the increased protocols, it was very difficult to get enough supplies for them. But staffing issues have also been a huge issue. And uh, again, people working at multiple sites. And I've also heard that, you know, a lot of times lodges are seen as an independent living. But it's not necessarily that pure or that uh, clean. I don't know how exactly to say it. But oftentimes, especially in rural Alberta, you know, we want seniors to be in their own communities, close to their family and friends. And so a lot of times the lodges are flexible. They work with Alberta Health Services. And so someone who's maybe a one, two, we call that designated supportive living one, two is the lodge program. <clears throat> but say they have higher level needs. So then home care is brought in through AHS to the lodge system. And so someone maybe who's a higher level, part of the continuing care system, level three, sometimes even level four, uh, which uh, generally uh, isn't seen as independent living, are supported through that. So, so a lot of uh, you know Alberta Health Services staff, uh, home care, go to many lodges because they're 
delivering medication. They're, you know, just just all sorts of things that uh, staff and lodges aren't trained to do because they're, they're not nurses or, you know, paraprofessionals that do that kind of thing. And uh, there's a huge issue with, uh, you know, because they go to several sites all the time uh, and them not following those protocols. Plus, of course, again, it's a low-wage job and, uh, you know, people have their own uh, personal demands plus, you know, they are afraid that they may transmit it to their family. And so not having enough staff. And if one staff is infected, say at another site, and they work at a site where there is no infections, then all of a sudden, all those staff that work with them must self-isolate. So I know I've talked to a few uh, CEOs of housing management bodies, and all of a sudden, the next day, they had no staff that they could bring in because they're all in self-isolation. And so, of course, you know, they're working together, they're doing the best they can, but it's been a significant uh, challenge, you know, at this time. And again, you know, it is low-wage work with not a lot of support, and, uh, you know, I, I... I think seniors and lodges are more independent. They generally are, of course, healthier than someone who lives in long-term care because that's a very high level of care. So they're more resilient. But there's still similar issues, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's it's clear there's more work to do. And there it sounds like there's I, – I would agree with you. There's more room for government to, I think, help coordinate this across the uh, all the independent – lodges and all the other folks that are working out here. We know there's a federal program uh, that's come out where they're going to be providing some money to the province of Alberta for wage top-ups and that sort of thing. So I guess that's something we'll be watching as well to make sure uh, it's applied in a way we can support all those staff so we can help protect seniors. Yes. Yeah. No, no, it's so important because, uh, you know, they're really putting themselves in harm's way. And, you know, I know the staff care very much and, you know, uh, have deep relationships with the people they serve and they want to help. But of course, this uh, COVID-19 has really, you know, changed everything and there's only so much we can do and we must make sure that we're, you know, that they are putting themselves at harm's way and they are self-isolating when they need to. But then we need people to come and care for seniors in those facilities. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons that we do need a province-wide strategy. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks, David. I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about this. One of the biggest issues that's been keeping me busy as the uh, official opposition critic for health has been this government's inexplicable war on Alberta doctors. Now, this started back in the fall with the renegotiation of the contract with uh, with uh, the uh, Alberta Medical Association representing physicians across the province of Alberta. The Tyler Shandro brought forward some very specific targeted proposals that doctors across the province warned were absolutely going to destroy. Their ability to provide quality, comprehensive family care was going to make it more expensive for them to practice in a hospital, was going to make all kinds of transformations in their ability to provide to be able to afford to provide care as physicians, particularly in rural communities. Now, I spoke in early March in the Alberta legislature, and I had a member statement where I called on the minister, I called on Tyler Shandra, and I called on UCP MLAs to back down on these changes because if they forced them through, they would be looking at a mass exodus 
of physicians from rural Alberta. They would be losing doctors in their hospitals, in their family clinics. And frankly, this is something that communities had spent years, invested years and years to attract doctors to their communities, to build up services for local folks. Well, the UCP did not listen. On April 1st, Tyler Shando forced through his short-sighted cuts uh, to what physicians are paid for their work in hospital, to uh, many other aspects of how physicians operate. So immediately we saw it begin. We saw eight physicians in Sundry uh, withdraw their services from the local hospital as of July, uh, post-COVID-19 pandemic. That was followed by, uh, that had been preceded by seven physicians in Stetler, seven physicians at the Rocky Medical Clinic in Rocky Mountain House, 10 of the 11 doctors in Lac La Biche, nine doctors in Pincher, Creek, all saying that because of these changes the government forced through, they would be forced to withdraw their work in the local hospital in order to make sure their family clinics could survive. That all took place in the matter of, uh, of about a week. So what we saw was an immediate reaction <laughs> then starting to build from the uh, UCP, uh, Tyler Shandro. Uh, my understanding is uh, UCP MLAs in rural areas began to realize the devastating impact of these cuts. They went back to their caucus. They let um, let Tyler Shandro know this was not going to work. Uh, there were some very hurried meetings and backdoor things. And then last week, what we saw was uh, Tyler Shandro came out and announced that he was going to be cleaning up a small amount of the mess he made, that he would be reversing some of the cuts and making some other changes and some other tweaks. Uh, so he came forward, he made those announcements, he announced that he was going to change uh, the cuts he was making to folks that worked in hospital in rural areas and putting it on pause for physicians in the city. He announced that uh, he would not touch the medical liability rates, which meant, which would have prevented uh, rural doctors from being able to afford to uh, to help deliver babies and provide many other services in their communities. Uh, he announced that he would fix the cuts he was making to the on-call rates for rural physicians who help support their local emergency emergency room, and, uh, and he announced he was making changes to the rural remote northern program. Now, what we saw after that, unfortunately, is that a lot of doctors said, you know what, that is not enough. Indeed, uh, what we, we saw, you know, the physicians in Lac La Biche did say, okay, thank you, that's enough for us. But a lot of other doctors, all the other doctors that I mentioned who have said they're going to withdraw services said they still intend to. Indeed, what we saw just this week was 18 doctors in Westlock now speaking up and saying that some of them are going to withdraw their hospital services and that this is not good enough. The only acceptable thing for them is if this government sits back down at the table gets rid of the legislation, Bill 21, that they passed in the fall that gives them the right to tear up doctor's contracts at any point. Because frankly, you can't have a relationship with an agreement that's only binding on one party. Nobody wants, nobody's willing to work with a contract like that. Secondly, they said they want the government to restore their previous contract on a temporary basis. And lastly, to sit down with a real third party independent arbitrator to develop a new agreement. Because doctors are saying, we cannot work in an environment where government can simply change the entire landscape that we work in on a whim. And indeed, I had the chance to talk with a few different doctors, and here's what they had to say about the situation the government has created for them. So if Tyler Shando resigned or was removed from the post, we had a fresh minister of health. Would that give you uh, any hope for improved negotiation? 
I think from talking, you know, on Facebook and on Twitter to my colleagues, there's sort of um, a majority of sort of three things that that we think would be very helpful. One of them is that for Minister Shandro to resign because of the derogatory and um, defaming comments that he has made towards our profession and to the AMA. I don't think that um, any negotiations with him would come to a really good uh, mutual beneficial ending um, that really we we should be allowed to um, have binding arbitration. If it's binding arbitration, then a third party mediator gets to decide what is fair and what is right. Um, and that Bill 21 is extremely detrimental to any further um, discussions that we may have around agreements. Um, so that Bill 21 uh, really needs to be needs to be revised or or removed right. um, before we can yeah. think that we're going to have um, a good a good discussion or a good resolution. So there you have it. Alberta physicians. For them to have reset the relationship with the government, remove Tyler Shandro, remove Bill 21, restore temporarily their previous contract, sit down at the table with an independent arbitrator and negotiate a new fair agreement. That makes sense. And one of the other things that had has had many people calling for the resignation of Tyler Shandro, and indeed for a lot of criticism of the government, is something called Bill 10. Now, back when we went back into the legislature in March to debate legislation that the government said was essential for their response to the pandemic, to COVID-19, they brought forward Bill 10, which was some amendments to the legislation that overlooks the emergency powers that government is granted during a public emergency or a medical emergency. We looked at that bill and we had some concerns. The government could not provide any reason why they wanted this legislation or why they needed it uh, because they had a lot of the powers already under the existing legislation. But there were three things in particular that we targeted. First of all, we recognized that the bill did not provide a clear sunset clause, so a day that some of the new provisions that ministers would have the power to bring in in the case of an emergency, the clear day that those powers or those things that they brought in would end a sunset clause. So there would be a, there's a date set for the, when the emergency ends, but not for some of the provisions that they're bringing in. So we said that should be in place. Secondly, we said the government should be required to publicly post any changes that a minister makes. Because again, ministers, uh, the minister of health and other ministers have the power to change or modify or adjust existing legislation under the under the law. So that means basically that they can modify or change things that might be preventing them from doing work that needs to be done during the pandemic, basically turn pieces of legislation off or on again. We said they should clearly publish online where everybody from Alberta can see any changes that are made so that Albertans know transparently what's happening. Uh, lastly, we suggested that a portion of the bill was a real problem. That was a portion of the bill that said not only can now ministers change or modify a piece of legislation, they can introduce entirely new legislation without ever going into debate in the legislature. So simply by the stroke of a pen, as long as that minister personally felt it was necessary to do in order to respond to the pandemic. They could create an entirely new piece of legislation that would never see debate and could trump every other existing piece of legislation that had gone through debate and been passed by the legislature under the scrutiny of the people of Alberta. We were deeply concerned by this, so I brought forward an amendment in the Alberta legislature and asked the government to change those three things. 
Unfortunately, the government chose not to listen. They chose not to make those three simple provisions to protect democracy in the province of Alberta. So we raised significant concerns about that. And indeed, I received a lot of emails from Albertans and others across the province uh, who also expressed deep concerns with this. And it was interesting to see one other very prominent person spoke up and had some concerns with this bill, a gentleman named John Carpe. Uh, now, John Carpe, a close friend and ally uh, of, of uh, Jason Kenney. He runs an organization called the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Now, John Carpe's name has come up here in the province of Alberta before uh, because of his fight against gay-straight alliances. So he was against the provisions we brought in to provide uh, our government for more protections for LGBTQ2S plus students. And indeed, he took our government to court. And he had lost his first round in court uh, that was still going to court. Jason Kenney, as his close friend and ally who has worked very closely with John Carpe in the JCCF on things like uh, LGBTQ2S plus student rights, In this case, John Carpe decided that he wasn't such a fan of Jason Kenney's new policy uh, and that being Bill 10. So John Carpe and the JCCF uh, indeed launched a constitutional challenge against Bill 10, and that's currently going forward in the courts. Once that occurred, suddenly uh, Mr. Kenney, in the last week, uh, decided that he maybe they should bring back Bill 10 and take a second look at that in the Alberta legislature and really consider whether they should be taking such a colossal overreach and affording themselves such incredible additional power in the midst of a pandemic. So I'm looking forward uh, to having the opportunity in the near future to uh, debate that in the legislature. We welcome the government's uh, recognition that they should not have taken this step and we'll be happy to work with them to correct this for the sake of democracy in the province of Alberta. Right, folks well that about wraps up another edition of the herd thanks so much for tuning in this week i uh, had a lot of content there but hey it's uh, busy times a lot of things happening in the province of alberta if you want to keep up i guess with a bit more of that at least from my perspective you can follow me at d shep y-e-g uh that's on twitter instagram and on Facebook, The Herd Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook as well. If you want to follow what's happening with the podcast, we're going to have lots more as we uh, work towards reopening the Alberta economy and keeping an eye on how things progress with that in the weeks to come. I want to send you out today with uh, for a track from a great band from right here in Edmonton, a group called Physical Copies. Now, Physical Copies plays a style of music they call pre-apocalyptic new wave. Uh, they are five best friends that have been creating pits and dance floors here in Edmonton. And they say for over 20 years, uh, physical copies is Willie Diamonds, Clint Fraser, Ben Disaster, Matt Bouchard, and Graham McKinnon, some guys who have been parts, uh, part of a lot of different bands here in the city of Edmonton, including Shout Out, 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 No Problem, The Screaming Targets, and The Real Sickies. So physical copies, uh, though they've been at it for a while, they're going to be putting out their first album, their debut album, this fall, September of this year. So here is a their second single from that debut album coming out in September. This is a song called Champion City from Physical Copies. I'll see you next week.